de Dominion Podcast. De Dominion Podcast. The Dominion Podcast. I saw red flags right away. Growing up, I received a lot of teachings from my grandmother, and she talked to me about the water when I was about 12. Now that almost three decades have passed since she said those words to me, they're still very fresh in my mind, especially when all this is happening. When somebody challenges me, my grandmother's words are louder than that. From the Media Co-op and CKUT, this is the Dominion Podcast. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about the Ring of Fire Mineral Belt in Northern Ontario. The ring is this massive collection of mineral deposits that sits within the land of nine separate Indigenous communities, all of which are members of the Madawa Tribal Council. The three nations situated most central to the deposits are Martin Falls, Webeque, and Neskantaga. But the Ring of Fire also has this other way it's often referred to. Well, it's Ontario's oil sands equivalent, I guess. The equivalent to Alberta's oil sands. We want to do what the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers did for the oil sands. And in a lot of ways, the analogy holds up. If the minerals in the land are extracted, it would generate an estimated $120 billion and also have a severe impact on the surrounding environment. So obviously, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the Ring of Fire. And before we jump into it, we want to give you some background. De Beers, the diamond company with those cheesy ads, set up a diamond mine in 2006 in Arawapiskat, a remote reserve in northern Ontario. And even before the mine was constructed, companies started descending on the region, searching for new diamond deposits so they could create new mines. It was during this search that surveyors stumbled onto huge deposits of copper, nickel, platinum, and they eventually found over 200 million tons of this extremely rare mineral called chromite. It ended up being the biggest chromite deposit in North America. The founder of one of these mining companies, who is a Johnny Cash fan, was taking a look at the shape that all these deposits made and decided to call it the Ring of Fire. Before continuing on, I should say a bit more about Atahuapiskat, the indigenous community where De Beers built their mine. The community has been in the news a lot since 2006. Just this past spring, activists around the country occupied the offices of Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada. They were demanding a response to an epidemic of suicides in Atahuapiskat. And the thing that's important to understand here is that the conditions of poverty, of housing crisis, states of emergency being declared, are not unique to Atahuapiskat. These conditions define the character of daily life for most Indigenous communities in the region. But the reporting on the Ring of Fire has largely focused on the mining companies. Very little has actually focused on the Madawa First Nations and the Indigenous communities surrounding them, whose lands these deposits are actually in, and who stand to be most affected by any development. So I really want to hear your take on why your series seems to be the only one like this. Like, why doesn't the rest of the reporting on the Ring of Fire look like this? This whole Ring of Fire issue, when the way it's reported, you know, a lot of it is, is being done by people who probably never lived in First Nations communities, never lived in the North. It's a whole different way of living and ways of knowing. 
Uh, so we're just going to jump out for a sec. That's Paul Rickard. Paul is an Omishkego Cree filmmaker who grew up in Northern Ontario in Moose Factory. He runs Mushkeg Media and produced this fantastic video series on the Ring of Fire for APTN. Anyway, uh, back to the interview. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story. The first time I went to visit the Webukwe First Nations, I went there and I you know, decided to stay for a month. After the first two weeks, uh, people in the community came up and said, are you here to do a report? Yeah, for APTN. I said, oh, why are you still here, do you ask? I said, why? And they said, well, most media comes in in the morning flight and leave in the afternoon. Huh. So what did it look like to spend that time there? Well, during the course of our uh, production of this uh, documentary series, we spent at least about, I would say, like six months there in the communities, in, in and out, between the Martin Falls and Webber First Nations, to talk to them, but also see what they're talking about, which meant going on fishing trips with them and talk about the importance of those activities for them culturally. We know a lot of the elders, their first language is Oji Cree, so we had to do the interviews in the Oji Cree language. And it's also true, too, a lot of these elders are, are not being addressed or heard. So on that note, I think this is a good time to play the clip that you brought from the series, and it features an elder from Wobokai First Nation speaking in Oji Cree. <laughs> So, Paul, can you tell people about who we were just listening to and, and a bit about what she was speaking about? Well, it's uh, Rebecca Shiwebek. She's an elder from the community of Wabakoi First Nations. Uh, we interviewed her and her husband, Patrick. She was saying that the elders had predicted that this was going to happen from the past and uh, there would be minerals in the land and the people are going to be displaced. You know, the trees are going to be disappeared and the animals, uh, and that's the biggest concern because for them, that's their livelihood. You know, and, and a lot of the elders, and I know also community members, talk about the importance of land and what it means for them and how that will be destroyed if the ring of fire ever happened. And, that, you know, tar sands was the worst example of what could happen to them in the whole ring of fire region. And, and that's some of the concerns that they bring up. And that's what Rebecca was talking about. And again, if people are interested in watching the entire series, which I would highly recommend, it's uh, viewable right now on the APTN website. It's called The Ring of Fire. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me about this. All right, thank you. It's not just rich people that own the media. I own my 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 media. The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. Join us today at mediacoop.ca slash join. This is the Dominion Podcast. I'm David Zinman. So the main company pushing forward the Ring of Fire development right now is a mining firm called Noron. And while the indigenous communities whose lands contain these minerals are all signatories to Treaty 9, the provincial government has continued to issue permits for mining companies to enter their territories. 
and this led to some confrontations. On different occasions after refusing to leave, both Webukwe, Martin Falls, and Niskantaga, all pro-development councils, had to confront Norant with direct action just to stop them from continuing mining activities on their territories. Out of these conflicts, and several others with the government, the band council leadership got together and put out a statement that they were evoking any consent for development. They demanded that any approval of any mining activities had to include them. They even hired Bob Ray, the former Premier of Ontario, as their chief negotiator with the province. This eventually led to the signing of the Regional Framework Agreement. The agreement set up the foundation for a series of negotiations on a whole host of issues, and it's been going on for several years now. But recently, the provincial government issued a series of permits to Noron without consulting the Matawa nations, uh, specifically for mining in Escantaga. So we got in touch with Wayne Munoz, the chief of Escantaga, to, to ask him about it. So Wayne, just to start off, can I just get your perspective on what's going on with Noron right now? Well, I, I can all I can say about this company, Noron, there's always talk about what they're doing in the, in the traditional areas, but our community has not provided its informed consent to allow this company to operate in our traditional areas. There's been discussions with the company in the past about the protocol and the process, but they do not respect our community process. They do not respect our engagement process, but they're still getting permits from the government. They're still getting uh, access to the area and yet uh, our community is left out in the process. So to say that, what is my point of view on on this particular company? I think they have to honor and respect our First Nation. I'm not happy about their current tactics or activities, the way they've approached their uh, exploration program. So these recent mining approvals for Noron uh, is happening in the context of these formal negotiations you're having with the province. And could you just talk a bit about how those got started and, and how they've been going up until this point? Seems like it's been a long, long process because I think one of the things that we experienced when it was first, when we first heard about it, even before that time, is the fact that the government of the day, whether if it's at that time or as we move forward to today, the government today still considers us as not a true nation of our of who we are as Anishinaabe people. We've had mining companies that have come into the area to do exploration programs and have received a negative response from the community because of the fact that if there is going to be something happening in our respective lands in our areas, they have to be involved. If it was Ring of Fire or even any developments of the past, so earlier in the show, I, I talked a bit about Atawapiskat and the state of emergency that they declared this past spring. And I know that in your community, there's actually been a state of emergency in place since 2013. Can you maybe talk a bit about the conditions that led to that declaration for people who are unfamiliar? Yeah, we had a, back in 2013, we had suicide tragedies that we suffered in our communities. Community declared a state of emergency, and then that state of emergency still exists because of the social conditions, the conditions in our First Nations has not changed. We've been under a 22-year boil water advisory. We have people, especially our young kids there, are developing rashes, sores. We don't know how much of a long-term impact it will have on their health as they grow up. We have a crumbling housing infrastructure in our community. We have mold. So uh, 
that is the reason why the state of emergency still remains in effect. There's a lot of things I can talk about in terms of the uh, the urgency that's required, the urgent action that's re- needed in the in our community. So in speaking about that urgency, I know there's been federal promises for funding specifically for the water emergency on the reserve. I'm just yeah. wondering how you're feeling about those promises and, and whether they've actually been materializing into anything on the ground. Uh, Minister Bennett and National Chief Bill Garden came to our community and actually stayed overnight in our community. And, uh, to me, uh, this was an opportunity for the minister in particular to see what our community is going through. These are similar conditions that other First Nations are facing. We're one of the richest resource countries in the world, and yet our people, for example, in Nishkanding are facing these day-to-day struggles of getting clean, potable drinking water. But in terms of the water treatment plant, we don't expect to have clean drinking water until maybe two, three years until the construction of a new water treatment plant is completed. So the hope that we have in our community, these uh, commitments that the minister and the government has made to our community will be followed through. But yet we have not received a written confirmation that construction is going to begin next year. So from here onward to up to three years, our people will still be uh, living in a state of no drinking water. So these funding commitments, you know, as inadequate as they might be, do you think they would still be on the table if the Ring of Fire hadn't been discovered? Well, we would hope that it would have been a same priority regardless what the situation in our community is because we're still people, still human beings that deserve just the same things that other people take for granted in this country. We're a remote First Nation community and a lot of things are being considered by the community right now in terms of how is their day-to-day lives going to be impacted? For example, their way of life, their traditional pursuits, how are those going to be protected for generations to come? Where we're from, everything is basically natural in our area. There's no roads, there's no highways in there, so if infrastructure or development comes, there's going to be a lot of changes that's going to happen in, into our community. That's what the, the community wants to know. They want to be informed participants in these plans or projects that potentially could impact their lives for the rest of their uh, time on this uh, earth here. And that was not happening when when this started. The fact that we're involved in a regional framework process with the province and other First Nations, at least there's something uh, happening now that's going to require First Nations involvement. But what we want in the end, is the right to have a say into what's going to happen in our in our traditional areas. So something that seems like it's consistently skirted in these conversations around the Ring of Fire is Treaty 9. I mean, all the communities, including Mishkintaga, are signatories to Treaty 9. And Cornelius Wabas, the chief of Webukwe First Nation, wrote this article where he talked a bit about in order to really have good faith negotiations around this development, that Treaty 9 has to be renegotiated in parallel. What is your viewpoint on the way that Treaty 9 relates to the current negotiations you're in? I think the relationship itself has not produced the benefits or the coexistence or the joint decision making, for example, that should have occurred. The development that's being proposed in our area, our community is very uh, pro-development, but we have to be involved in the process. We consider ourselves to be a sovereign nation uh, in, our, in our first nation. We signed a treaty based on that. I don't think the Crown would have entered 
these agreements with the First Nations if they didn't feel that they were sovereign? Why has that changed over time? The relationship and reconciliation discussions and talk that has been provided by both levels of government, it has to be a real. It has to be realized that this is true to what they're doing. So, miigwech, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for taking the time. So not every community surrounding the Ring of Fire is pro-development. And not everyone within these communities necessarily support the band council system. Jennifer Obeno, a founder of the Umushkogoic Women's Water Council, publicly challenged the chief of the Mushkogoic Band Council in his support for the project. Since that's happened, more water councils have been created, challenging the band council leaders in their enthusiasm for the development. We were able to get in touch with Jennifer, who is a Meshkego mother and activist from Piwanek First Nation, to, to talk a bit about the formation of the Water Council and what it's meant to work to protect the waters of her community, which is directly downstream from the Ring of Fire Belt. So Jen, before we jump into it, would you feel okay just talking a bit about how you came to this work? Sure. I grew up on my family's ancestral lands. Growing up, I received a lot of teachings from my grandmother, and she talked to me about the water when I was about 12, and she expressed her concerns for the future. At the time, I didn't really know what she was talking about, like I, you know, being 12 and wanting to just go play outside with my cousins, like we were playing ball or whatever, and but it was the concern in her voice that made me stay to listen. So I listened to her and she expressed her concerns about the future. And now that almost three decades have passed since she said those words to me, they're still very fresh in my mind, especially when all this is happening with our waters, like oil spills, mining accidents. And that's part of the reason why I'm very strong on the work that I do, because my grandmother, like it was her wish for our watersheds to be protected. And um, I know she was also thinking about her great-grandchildren. When somebody challenges me, my grandmother's words are louder than that. So in talking about the challenges that you've been mounting, I was wondering when you actually first learned about the Ring of Fire. Um, I learned more about it when I first moved back to Ontario because I lived in Alberta for a number of years and I moved back in 2010. Like, I I never received any um, comprehensive packages. Maybe they just talked with the band council, but at that time, uh, when it was just surfacing and the people weren't really aware, I just did some research to find out more about it. And I saw red flags right away because I was concerned for my community because we're downstream from the Ring of Fire Belt and along with the other Omishkegua communities from the James Bay Coast. And uh, for people living outside of the area, can you explain a bit about where Piawanek is in relationship to the Ring of Fire? Okay, Piawanek is located on the Hudson Bay coast, and it's the second most northerly community in Ontario. And the Weenus River, it connects to Webequay, and Webequay is one of the communities on the Ring of Fire built. The other communities uh, on the James Bay coast, their rivers also connect to the belt. And so how does the proposed development of the Ring of Fire Belt stand to specifically affect Piawanek? Well, water is a big thing, especially with the chromium mining activity. 
It's just like the Aaron Brockovich movie. Like we can use that as an example, how it's going to affect the water and the people that depend on the water, the fish, other wildlife, and the medicines that we use. Fish is a big part of our diet, especially in that area there in the Winter Fire Belt. The Ojibwe and the Ojibwe communities that harvest the same caribou as us, they're going to see them disappear because the caribou is going to be pushed further north to the Oshkegook. Uh, Cancer is another issue. I'm worried about the future generations in that aspect because of the chromium. I want my great-grandchildren to enjoy the fresh waters that I'm enjoying right now. Because we're always taught that we have to think seven generations ahead. We have to leave something for them, too. I don't think much thought has been put into that. I mean, has there been any process of consultation? And if so, what, what does that look like? In my community, there was no community engagement process. We feel that there's little to zero consultation. The consultation process is not limited to the chief and councils. It has to be through the community members, the grassroots, the elders, the trap line holders, the water keepers. They should have a say in the fate of their waters. I founded the Water Council last year because of all this. We need something in place to protect the rights of the people. Could you talk a bit more about the Water Council? And, and I mean, for people who are unfamiliar with the band council system and, and the history of it, where it comes from, could you maybe talk a bit about what makes the Water Council different? Okay, so our Water Council is based on a hereditary system, whereas Chief and Council system is it's a corporation of the Canadian government based on colonial law. It's part of the Indian Act. The leadership of the uh, Muskegua Council, which is a corporation of the Canadian government, at the time, wasn't following proper protocols when it came to consultation. I felt that it was being rushed. And like my band isn't part of the Meshkegua Council. My band's independent. But that doesn't change the fact that we are a Meshkegua people. That doesn't change the fact that I am a Meshkegua. I don't need an Indian Act system to tell me if I'm Meshkegua or not. Like the people in my community, they'll be affected because of the connecting rivers. Our laws and protocols are based on our inherent rights, the rights that we were born with. It's part of our indigeneity, and we haven't given that up. So in, in advocating for those rights, I know that you've been very vocal since forming the council in opposing the Ring of Fire development. And since the Madawa First Nations have started this formal negotiation process with the province around the development, I was wondering if, if your council has been included in any of those discussions. So with the consultation with the Matawa First Nations, I did write them letters to the Indian Act chief organizations, including Matawa, so that my water council can be included in their discussions and negotiations, because like I said, we're, we're directly downstream, and I haven't gotten a response. So the chief and councils, they need to include the hereditary chiefs, they need to include the knowledge keepers in their meetings. They're, they're engaged in negotiations on environmental loss, like what price can you put on clean air, water, food, because that's currently what most communities are negotiating for, the price of life. Could you actually talk a little bit more about what resistance to development has looked like through the Water Council? And, and I was also actually wondering what the relationship is between that work and treaty rights, if, if there is any relationship. 
The resistance started when Pionic members started looking at the Ring of Fire in 2010 and started a committee to gather information and make presentations from what was learned. A message was sent to NAN, the Anishinaabe Eski Nation, about the committee's position but unfortunately fell on deaf ears. So over the years, community members continued to share and express their opinions relating to the Ring of Fire. And now now that the um, environmental issues are getting more exposure, the Water Council couldn't be in a better position to solid platform for change. So we're just going to jump out here again for a sec. The Anishinaabe Aski Nation, which Jen was just referring to, if you're unfamiliar with it, it's an organization that represents the band council leadership of 49 different Indigenous communities in Northern Ontario. The Anishinaabe Aski Nation, or NAN, has been the main organization at the table with the province during this negotiation, and so is essentially the umbrella organization for the band council negotiations with the province. Anyway, back to the interview. You know, when the treaties were signed and our ancestors were made to sign it, marking it with an X, there was a language barrier. My ancestors, they didn't understand the English language. They couldn't write it and they couldn't read it. The only thing they understood was that X from that sacred circle. They wanted to make sure that the future generations would be protected as well. My grandfather, when when he um, talked about the treaty, he said that we didn't see surrender or release our lands. He says those words in Cree, um, Something that I've been hearing a bit from people on the more pro-development side is what what's being described as coercion, that essentially after generations of colonial trauma, the systemic poverty that's resulted from it, you know, states of emergency being declared in, in so many of these communities, that the government has sort of created a situation where the ability to say no just isn't there. Like, what, what do you make of, of this perspective? If you look at, there's a few communities, their water is affected right now. And the ring of fire is being pushed. They want this to be up and going already. And meanwhile, in some of these communities, like Niskandiga First Nations, their water problems have been there for, what, almost 20 years? Why is the water crisis not being looked after before they even look at the ring of fire negotiations? All the water crisis that's happening, the bad water that some of these communities have, they need to be fixed before they could even talk about the ring of fire. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me about this. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. So that's it for this first episode. We're going to try to put out an episode every month. And if you like what you heard or are just interested in seeing if we can do it a bit better, uh, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app or through iTunes. Uh, A positive review would go a long way. Uh, big thanks to Stefan Kristoff and DJ Johnny Ripper for letting us use the music and sounds that you heard on this episode. The Dominion podcast is recorded at the studios of CKUT uh, in downtown Montreal on occupied Kanagahaga territory. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a month.
It's not just rich people that own the media. But by leaving out the most important things you need to know, they can elevate awareness to a new all-time low. I own my media. 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 The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. But if it's just left out, can you say the paper lied? A lot of things that happened didn't happen after all. If there's no one in the forest who will put it in the news, I guess the tree didn't fall. Join us today at mediacoop.ca slash join. I'm joining today. You should too.